Everyone knows that something's broken. Everyone knows that something's wrong with planet Earth. We can debate on what that is, but everybody knows something's not right. Everybody knows that there's something broken with humanity. We could debate on what it is that's broken, but everybody knows it's broken. And everybody knows that something needs to be fixed, and yet we find no consensus in the world of how we can get it fixed. Even you, when you think about life at times, you you will sense that you're living below what God has planned for you. You're, you think, I, I somehow I have to break out of what I'm doing. I feel like God has something higher for me and better for me and, and, and a life that's more fulfilling and more filled with purpose. But I'm struggling to break into that. We sense that something's not quite right, even in our own bodies. Something's not right. It just shouldn't be this way. That you wake up and you're like, oh, where did that pain come from? Or, I'm hardly eating anything and I'm gaining weight. Or, I climb a flight of steps and can't catch my breath. Or, you, my hair won't stay in. I mean, there's all kinds of issues we have. My energy levels are not what they should be, you know. My mind won't shut down. It just spins out of control. We all sense that something's not right, even in our own bodies. Sickness and death, to me, seem totally unnatural. There's nothing more weird than a funeral home setting. Nobody in this room has been in a funeral home more than me. And around death as much as I have. Unless you're a nurse on critical care floor, probably. I've been around death and I've been around this scene a lot. It just seems weird to me still. I can't get used to it. Seems unnatural, doesn't seem like it should be this way. Seems like death is, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like we were made for death. It feels like we were made for life. Doesn't feel like we were made for sickness. It feels like we were made for health. Uh, It doesn't feel like we were made to be downtrodden it feels like we were made to create and build and design and paint and sing and compose it feels like that's what we should be doing but yet we're not all doing that i find that we have an internal longing for love and for justice and for peace and for a world that is set right But yet, how to get there, the world doesn't know. For most of this year, we've been preaching from the Old Testament and teaching the stories of the Old Testament. Everything I've just said is what the Old Testament is saying to you. Something's not right. It needs to be fixed. But how can it be fixed? Where is justice? Where is God? Does it even pay to serve God? Does there any benefit in even being God's people? And these are the cries of God's people for thousands of years in the Old Testament. And God sends the prophets and God sends the spokespeople.
people to say to God's people, be faithful. God's going to send His fixer. The Messiah will come and He will rise like the sun with healing in His wings. And for those who are faithful, you are written in a book of remembrance. God is never forgetting your faithfulness. God is never forgetting your service. He's watching. He's keeping track. And let God do what God is doing. He's going to fix this mess. Now, one of the things you learn about God is that God is not passive. This is one reason we study the Old Testament. God is an initiator. Thankfully, He does not sit back as maybe some people picture God as this old man with a long white beard and a rocking chair. He created and now He just sits back and lets it happen. Not at all. The Bible tells a very different story. It tells about a God who is interacting with His creation. He's engaged. They may step back for a time and let some things happen and then He'll step right back in and begin to work in our lives. And God has said, I'm going to fix this mess. I'm going to fix it the only way it can be fixed. I'm going to send my king. A human king is coming who will fix the mess that you're in. And this is really the story that opens the the New Testament now. Uh, Going forward from today until at least Easter, we're going to be telling the story of Jesus, the life of Christ, how God became king. The Old Testament says we need help. Today and Saturday night we're going to talk about Christmas is coming. The King comes. And then for the next few weeks going forward, we're going to tell you the story of how this baby became God's King of the world. God is an initiator. He is a caring and loving, involved, and the Bible uses this word, Father to us. So you can relate to God and understand what He's like. The Bible uses the word Father. He's like a Father would be to you. Protective and caring and loving. And hopefully you had that kind of Father. And uh, God will certainly be that kind of Father to you. So now as the New Testament opens, God is launching the thing that He's been promising to launch for a long time. God says, okay, now we're going to do what I've been telling you I'm going to do. It's my magnum opus, if you will. It's the greatest thing I've ever done when God, out of love for the world, sent His Son in the form of a human. There are two detailed accounts of the birth of Christ in your New Testament. The book of Matthew gives you one detailed account, Matthew chapter number 1. And Brother Luke gives you the other account of the birth of Christ in Luke chapters 1 and 2. So the two chapters in Luke and the chapter in Matthew are how we get the Christmas story. What you know about Christmas, what you know about shepherds and angels and, and, and even wives, it all happens. What you know about Bethlehem and birth, it all happens in these three chapters in your Bible. Talk a little bit about one of those passages this morning and another when we come together in the candlelight service on Christmas Eve. Let's talk about uh, Brother Luke's chapter 1 this morning. Brother Luke is intentionally focused, uh, let me say this to you about Matthew and Luke, which we're going to study really in these coming weeks. Maybe you've not really understood what Matthew and Luke are trying to say to you. Matthew and Luke have worded their stories in such a unique way that I want to keep pointing out to you what it is they're trying to say to you. 
Matthew and Luke don't step into the scene and say, okay, forget everything you've ever heard from the Old Testament. We're going to tell you something totally new now. That's not what New Testament means. What the New Testament means is, hey, this great story that God's been telling for 4,000 years, let us bring it up to date with the most current events. Their stories are a continuation of everything I've been teaching you all year this year. They are grabbing those stories and saying, and now here's what happened next. It's not a completely separate thing. It's an update on the thing we've been saying all along. And I'll show you how Luke does that this morning. Let's talk about Luke's Jesus backstory. It is Luke who's going to tell the story of Jesus, but he won't come right out and say, Christ is born and here we go with this new thing. Luke is very carefully going to connect you to the Old Testament before he tells you the Jesus story. So Luke comes at you like this. He says, okay, I want to tell you a story about Jesus, the king that God, the man that God sent to be the king of the world. And I want to start telling you that story by telling you the backstory. Now, I love backstories because backstories make things make so much sense. Uh, you like them too. Uh, you just don't call them backstories necessarily. You'll be watching a movie and then all of a sudden it'll go back. And then all of a sudden it'll go forward. And then all of a sudden it'll go back and show you an event. And then it'll go forward and show you an event. And the event in real time makes more sense when you see what happened before. The backstory gives it some substance and makes it mean what it means. What does the birth of Jesus mean? What does the babe in a cradle in Bethlehem mean to us? What does the virgin birth mean to us? And what ultimately does the cross mean to us? And the empty tomb. They need a backstory. So Luke's going to start with the Jesus backstory. Luke begins by, Luke tells Jesus' story by telling someone else's story. He says, I want to tell you the story of Jesus, so here we go. I'm going to talk to you about a family that's not even Jesus' family. Just cousins, okay? And Luke believed you needed this in order to make the story make sense. There's something about Mary's pregnancy that's going to be different. There's something about Mary's pregnancy that's going to be so bizarre that Brother Luke thinks you're going to struggle with it. He thinks you're going to have a problem if you don't have a backstory. Because evidently the pregnancy of Mary is going to have some fascinating twist to it. And Luke says, if I just tell you that, you're going to be saying, yeah, I don't know about that. So Luke says you need some context then. You need some backstory before I get to that story. So here's what he does. He says, I want to tell you the story about two old people. Uh, the Christmas story is a story about two young people. It's about a young virgin named Mary who's going to deliver a baby who's never had relations with a man. Probably a late teenager, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20 years of age is what we guess. And you, you think the story of Christmas is a young story, young person's story. And Luke says, let's start with an old couple first. There's this old man who's a priest, okay? And he's got an old wife. And she's kind of just old. 
and dried up a little bit. And uh, she's never had a baby, can't have a baby. She's barren. Luke said, I want to tell you their story for a minute. The priest served in shifts, and you didn't have to come to Jerusalem unless it was your course. And it was his course, so they came into Jerusalem, and he's serving in the temple, and his wife is there, and his wife has always been an outsider. Because in this culture, you are valued by how many children you can have. And the gold standard is bearing seven sons to your husband. And so, unless you're fertile myrtle and you've cranked out seven boys, uh, then you're, you're a scorn. You're, you're, you're mistreated, verbally abused. Uh, people will just talk about you to your face. And uh, she's lived this her whole life. She's always been a bit of an outcast, even though her husband has this position in, in the priesthood. She's been mocked. Uh, she's been, uh, other people have gloated in her presence. Now Luke is telling this story about this old couple, and the story is intentionally designed to pull your thoughts back to the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah. Luke has designed it on purpose this way. As soon as he starts talking about an old man and an old woman and they can't conceive kids, your mind should go right to Genesis and you're like, oh, this is Abraham and Sarah. It's exactly what Brother Luke is setting you up for. And then he's going to talk about she can't conceive and she's, she's uh, you know, in the society you're supposed to figure out she's being, you know, mocked and looked down on. Which takes you right to the story of Jacob and Rachel in the book of Genesis. And how Leah was fertile myrtle and Rachel wasn't. And it caused complete conflict in the home and favoritism and strife and all. And, and then Rachel prayed and Jacob prayed and, and then God gave Rachel a child. Just like God intervened and gave Abraham and Sarah a child. It's supposed to take your mind back to the book of Judges where a woman prayed and begged God for a son and Samson was born. It's supposed to take your mind back to the Old Testament where a woman named Hannah came into the house of God and fell down at the altar and began to pour out her heart and say, God, the one thing I yearn for is to have a child. And God, if you'll give me a child, I'll give him back to you. I'll dedicate his life to your service. And how God gave that woman a, a, a baby boy, which she named Samuel, who became a servant in the house of the God and one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Luke is not telling you something new. He's saying, wake up. This is a continuation of the old story that God's been telling for so long. And if I tell you Mary has this really unusual thing about to happen with the birth of Jesus, you might dismiss it. So I want to remind you that Abraham and Sarah had an unusual birth, miracle baby. And Rachel had two miracle babies. And Hannah had a miracle baby. And Samson was born to a couple in the same way. And on and on the story goes. What's Luke doing to us? Luke is trying to get your mind conditioned that when you see the story of the virgin birth and the conception of Jesus Christ to Mary, that you're going to say, yeah, this is the kind of thing God would do, all right? And if you have, as a Christian, accepted that, and you say, yeah, virgin birth, yeah, that's just like God to do something like that. Listen, if you don't think God has a sense of humor, it's just like God to do something like that, to confound the, wo the world. If you've read 1 Corinthians, Paul talks a lot about this. God's chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, 
And uh, it's just like God to do something like this. And that's really Luke's point of view. God is going to send his king to the earth. It's going to be something very fantastic. Don't get bogged down with that. God works through ordinary people, just doing ordinary things. And so he tells the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Mary's older cousin. And he tells their story in such a way that Luke also wants you... You see, when Jesus is born, we'll talk about the wise men in a few weeks, the Magi, the world's hung up on the fact that nobody knows who Mary and Joseph are. They're nobodies. If you don't get anything else this morning, then get this. God shows up in the lives of ordinary people. The greatest thing God has ever done on planet Earth, He did through ordinary people. Virgin birth of Christ. The ordinary people. Do you know how the church was started? Ordinary people. Peter, James, John, Matthew, a tax collector, some blue collar, some white collar, no nobility. Only people who were looked down on. I mean, not big shots. Just people. Just people like you. Often we think when we are worshiping God and hearing sermons and reading our Bible and we're seeing these people's lives, we're like, yeah, good for them. I wish God, you know, would do something great in our ear. It's you he wants to work with. Ordinary people like you and I, God shows up in our lives and begins to do something great. And when God shows up to do what he wants to do, God a, has a great eye for detail. God has a great eye for detail. He's going to take care of all the little things that we are concerned about when he does the big thing that he's concerned about. Let me read to you part of the Christmas story now. Zacharias and Elizabeth were not expecting God to show up in their life. They were going to church. They were doing their jobs. They were living their life. I guess they were at this point content to be childless. And they were just doing what they do every day like you and I do every day. And then in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, God begins to intervene. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. And his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, Elizabeth's a big deal. She's one of Aaron's great-great-granddaughters, okay? These are, these are the right people from the right family. They're just despised because they don't have a child. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. Now, let me say something to you. You say, well, what do I do while I'm waiting God to show up? That right there. No, back up one. That right there. Just do what you're supposed to do. While you're waiting for God to do the next best thing He's going to do, the next big thing He's going to do, just give and love and serve and sing and worship and make disciples and love your family and work hard and be honest and, and, and be a good citizen. And, 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 yeah, just be righteous. Just be what God wants you to do. There's something very noble. America was built on a concept called Judeo-Christian work ethic, which was kind of like this. It just meant do what we're supposed to do. Just, just be God's people. Work hard. Worship with all you are. Give your life a, a, and your energy and your wealth to the Lord. And be all in for Jesus. And don't worry about anything else. When God gets ready to do what he's going to do, he'll show right up in your ordinary life and he'll manifest his presence. And that's what they're doing. They're just observing the Lord's commands and degrees. And they're just doing what they should do. Use the word blamelessly. I love that. Verse 7. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. 
Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple and burn the incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Only one person gets to go in. He won the long straw, and he's going to go in and be the one to light the incense alone in, in, in the temple. Verse 11, he went in to light it, and then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and gripped with fear, as you would be. Nobody ever goes in there in mass. He's supposed to be alone. There's an angel standing next to him. It, you, you know, if you're brushing your teeth and you look up in the mirror and then there's someone in the room with you, you understand. Okay? And uh, that's kind of his experience here. And he's startled and he's frightened, but the angel said to him what angels say when they show up, don't be afraid. Fear not. Your prayer has been heard. So evidently it's always been the yearning of their heart to have a family. The prayer of your heart has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. Another interesting thing in these New Testament stories, all the kids are pre-named. <laughs> you know? It's like when you conceive a child, God's already emailing you the name and saying, yes, that'll be a Chloe or that'll be a Billy or that'll be a Jack or that'll be... And just the name comes in the email almost. And uh, God says, you're going to have a son. It's going to be John. Sex predetermined, name predetermined. You're going to tell Mary, Mary, you're going to have a son. You can call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. It just shows you, the authors are trying to say to you something. They're saying to you, God is in control. God is at work. None of this is random. Some days you're going to be driving down the road and thinking life's just not going the way you want it to go. And I want you to say out loud to yourself, this is not random. Ashley, you and I were talking about this this morning. This is not random. This is not random. You say, well, it just happened. It just an accident. It just... Life is not random. God is in control. And He's executing things. And, and you just trust Him. And you look for God to show up in your life. And when He shows up, have a nice conversation with Him. Now, in your context, Holy Spirit's living in you. And you have nice conversations all the time with God. And the more you talk to Him, the more He's going to talk back. And you're going to find that He wants to talk to you at odd times. A mom often comes down to breakfast in the morning and says, God woke me up in the night and I had to write down what he wanted me to say in my lesson on Wednesday and we had a nice conversation, but I wish he'd let me get some sleep. You know, uh, I think a lot of you, you spend a lot of time in the car, right? Like me, I have a 30-minute commute each way. Yeah, it's a, it's a good time to, you know, especially if you're alone in the car, it's a good time for you just to start talking out loud to God. And just say, God, I'm here if you want to say something to me. I'd like to talk to you for a minute. I've got 30 minutes here on my hands. Maybe more if the idiot in front of me doesn't get going. And God, if you'd like to say something, I'm here. And I'd just like to tell you good morning. You know, uh, I, I could use a little help today. Whatever. Just start talking to God and see if he will not show up and, and begin to act in your life. Now, Luke has told us this story about Elizabeth and Zechariah. Not that he really wants to tell that story. That's just, the, that's just the back story. He only wanted to tell you that story to get you ready for the bigger surprise. Uh, Elizabeth's surprise is a surprise. You're going to have a son, you who were barren. But I'm just priming the pump, so to speak, to get you ready for the big story. And the big story is Mary's going to have a baby. 
An old woman's going to have one. Her cousin, now the virgin's going to conceive and bear a son. And you're supposed to be saying, yeah, look, God's active. God's active. Uh, the one who can't have a child is going to have one. And the other one who shouldn't have a child is going to have one. Everybody, you say what? God's working on both ends of the age spectrum here. Luke has designed the story so that you don't question the virgin birth. So that you're saying, yeah, this is Abraham. This is, this is one in another dozen stories of how God works in people's lives to bless them with children. Now, I want to say this. The gospel writers took a big risk to put this in the story. They took a big risk to put this in the story. And they could have told the story without these little details. They could have just said, Joseph and Mary had a baby. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. But these stories are telling something very specific about how Jesus came to this earth. How God became a man who became king. That's the story that they're really trying to tell. Not just about a Savior but how God became king, had to be born to the right family, and he had to be born in the right way, and this is the story that they want to tell you. And they put this detail in there at big risk to their credibility, and the only thing you can come away with is that they actually believed this story. There's no other way you would say, well, how did they, when they put the virgin birth in there, they could have said this and just leave out like three words and the thing would have told, you know, equally, wonderfully, but without the virgin part in it. No, they told that because that's what they believed to be true. You say, well, how did they believe that to be true? They knew Mary. They knew Mary. Mary's around. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Thaddeus. Simon, little James, big James, other James, John, John, Mark, Mary, 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 Mary Magdalene, Salome. They all knew Mary, the mother of Jesus. You say, well, how did they get this detail? Simple. She's right there. Ask her. Now, I want to just put this out there. Uh, the Baptists get some things wrong. The Protestants get some things wrong. The Catholics get some things wrong. This morning, obviously, I'm, 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 I'm taking a point of view, I'm taking a side, that the Catholics are right to revere Mary, and the Protestants are wrong to never talk about her. She's not co-mediatrix with Christ, she's not the Savior, you don't have to pray to her, but she's a big deal. And we've largely ignored what a big deal she is. She was a big deal to the apostles and the first disciples. And so much so that one of them says, I'll take care of her as if she were my own mother. That's what a big deal she was. It would be fair this morning for me to say to you, she was like the church mother. She's like the church mother. She's like that older lady in the church that walks with God and has a connection with God and loves the Lord and has been around a lot longer than you and has seen some things, and lived through some things, and has been a participant in a miracle in her own life. And she's been gossiped about, and talked about, and trashed, and thrown under the bus. And she's strong, and she's wiry, and we all look to her like she's our grandmother. Does that sound fair to you? If you know somebody like that, that's Mary. And all the apostles and all the disciples look to her, even after the death of Christ, I think as a source of strength. Tell us the story again. 
Wouldn't it be cool if this year at Christmas, on Saturday night, at Christmas Eve, wouldn't it be cool if you came here at 5 o'clock and I put a stool right here and a stool right here and I said, okay, Mary, tell us the story again. To me, that'd be the coolest thing in the world. To have Mary sit in front of the church and be interviewed by the church and say, tell us the story of how God became king. Tell us the story of how God came into the world. And tell me, what, what does an angel look like? And is the voice deep and booming, or was he a tenor? Was he seven foot tall, or did he look like a man? Was he blonde blue, or brown brown? Or green eyes, or were they red and glowing? you have laser beams? Or did he emanate a heat? Did he smell like Chanel, or what, what kind of cologne do they have in heaven? And, oh, I've got a million questions I want to know. Barefooted or monk straps or lace-ups or cowboy boots? What was the cut of his clothes? What do they dress like when heaven sends a messenger? What do they look like? And what was his manner? And did he put his arm around you and give you a hug of reassurance? Or was he standoffish and, you know, didn't want to freak you out? You know, was he gentle and kind in his time? I want to know. I have so many questions. I have so many questions about Bethlehem that the Bible doesn't answer for me. Did Joseph deliver the baby? I want to know. I don't know why I want to know. Morbid fascination. Did Joseph deliver the baby? You know? Or did a midwife come to deliver the baby? And was it a stone manger with hay in it? Or did you put like an old quilt in there? And... I know the song says, you know, that he didn't cry. Way in a manger, you know, no crying he makes. But that's just completely bogus. He's a baby. He pooped. Diaper blowout. He had to be nursed. I, I, I want to know. I totally get the deity of Jesus Christ ruling from the throne. What I want to know is what was he like as a man? What was he like as a boy? Did he ever steal a stop sign? Now, I mean, I know he didn't, but I'm just, was he, what was he like as a kid? You know, was he that really good kid in class or was he a prankster? Did he play practical jokes with the other kids on the other kids? Does he have a sense of humor? Does he have a nice singing voice? Mary, sit down and tell us the story. Now, if you think the Christians dismissed Mary... They didn't. She was a focal point for the early church because she had information that everybody wanted because she's a first-hand player in the greatest thing that God ever did for humanity. Let me fast-forward the story very quickly. Let's fast-forward the story now six months. So Elizabeth has gone from barren to six months in her pregnancy. Now the scene shifts and Luke takes you from Judea south, around Jerusalem, takes you up to the north country, up to Galilee, and you go to the city of Nazareth. So here we go. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Now, this is important, and Luke is putting the details in here on purpose 
Why would he say a descendant of David? Because he's telling you a continuation of a story that God appeared to David and said, David, from your seed, I will raise up a king who will sit on the throne. I will raise up a righteous branch from the root of Jesse. And one of your descendants will be my true king who will sit on the throne and rule in righteousness forever. That's the promise God made in the David, Davidic covenant. And so the Luke is hooking all these details in here very subtly. Verse number 2. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting that might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and you will give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. From the very first chapter of the book of Luke, Brother Luke is talking about a kingdom that is coming And in order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king. The story that Luke and Matthew and Mark and John are about to tell is not how Jesus came to save you from your sins. Although that story is in here, the story they're about to tell you is how God became king. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, look down at verse 34, and Mary's like, how will this be? (laughs) I may be a teenager, and I may not know everything about life, but I know some basics about animal husbandry. In an agrarian society, I I think I know how this works. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Very important words. Come upon you, overshadow you. So the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. Now Mary didn't get that news through social media. The way she knew Elizabeth, her cousin, was going to have a baby is because Gabriel has announced it to her. Angel means messenger. It's what the Greek word means. Angelos, messenger. And he's brought a message from God that you're going to have a baby and your cousin who's barren is also going to have a baby and she's six months ahead of you in this miracle conception business that God's in. So you, 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 you may want to go and visit your cousin Elizabeth and help her out. She's an old woman and she's going to need a little help with this thing. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month. Well, this is a very private details, isn't it? This is a very precise uh, monthly business that's being announced to the world. Everything seems to be on a timeline. God knows exactly where we're at in the process. And Brother Luke somehow has come upon these details. I want to ask you, tell me, how does Luke know all of this intimate details about announcement timing and how far along a woman is with her pregnancy? And how does he know all of this? He's not in the room. 
Mary is the only answer. Mary is the only answer. Somebody sat Mary down in front of the church and interviewed her, and they got all the stories that they could get out of her, and they wrote those stories down, and they told those stories to one another, and Mary saying, and when the angel said this, and then the angel said that, and the angel even knew how far along Elizabeth was. She was six months along, and if I was going to get down there, I better get down there in the next few months if I intended to help her uh, with, with the delivery of the child. And that's the story the angel's telling. And then verse 37 comes along, and Gabriel says to Mary and to us this morning, for no word from God will ever fail. I want you to lock on to that statement this week. No word from God will ever fail. So while you're driving down the road and you're saying, God, are you up for a little chat this morning on the commute? I've got to go run some errands. I've got some time here to say, hey, God, what would you like to say to me? You need to just know that whatever God says to you, no word from God will ever fail. You need to know that when you get into the Bible and God speaks through His word to you, you can take it to the bank. No word from God will ever fail. When God says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will care for you, you are my child, your prayers are always heard, I will always give you my ear. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I will never depart from you. I will always be with you. When God says those things to you, you can take it to the bank. No word from God will ever fail. Maybe if you want to memorize your last verse of 22, this would be a good one. It's a pretty short one. No word from God will ever fail. Say it with me. For no word from God will ever fail. It'll never fail if God says it. And the angel is saying to Mary, Elizabeth's going to have a baby, and you're going to have a baby, For no word from God will ever fail. Now, he has to be talking about more than just you're going to have a baby. He has to be saying, this has been God's plan all along, and the time is right, and you're the right woman for the job, and God has promised to send a king, promised to send a son of David, promised to send a fixer to deal with the sin problem, to be king of the world. And no word from God will ever fail. Missy, you're about to be the king's mother. You are about to be the king's mother. Now, it's not without some hardships. It's not without some responsibilities when God wants to use you for his mission. What a privilege to be used for God's mission. But it's not without some hardships. And it's not without some trials. And it's not without some difficulty. It requires some sacrifice and courage to live for Jesus and to pursue his mission. The greatest challenge the modern church is facing is that the people who call themselves Christians, and I know you are, I'm not talking down to you, we who call ourselves Christians don't make disciples anymore. And the church in America is going to die. Because those who are saved no longer reproduce. You say, Pastor, I don't want the church to die. Make some disciples.
when God shows up to do what he... Now, it's not without sacrifice. That's what I want to say to you. It's not that you're not going to be fearless. You may have some fears. And as soon as I start talking about making disciples and it gets so quiet, people are like, yeah, I just, I don't talk well to people. I, I know, we have fears. We have anxieties. We have, we have issues. I want to challenge you. Can you imagine what it's like to be 16? An angel shows up and says, you're going to have the son of God, king of the world. You're going to be the queen mother. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, going, to, you're going to give birth to the son of God who's going to change the history of the world. For, you don't think that was intimidating? Well, what are my parents going to say? When I show up pregnant in a few months, what is my fiance going to say when I say, surprise, that's it. Oh, let me tell you a story. No, I've been true to you. I'm, I'm still a virgin. It's God's baby. It's God's baby. There's not a man in this room who would buy that. There's not a man in this room who would buy that. The one you've loved and pledged yourself to shows up pregnant. And you're like, honey, you're kind of getting a little chunky. You're going to fit in the wedding dress. She's like, yeah, we need to talk about something. I'm pregnant. And you're like, you understand the tension in this story that's just being sailed right through here? It's not without some stress to do what God wants you to do. My question to you is, are you up for it? Are you up for the challenge to do what God wants you to do? And God wants you to engage in the mission. Now, he's not going to force you. I'm not going to force you, and I'm not going to berate you, and I'm, not, I'm just going to equip you and enable you, and we'll see what happens, okay? God's not going to force Mary. There's some modern feminist writings out about Mary that talks about how God raped her, and, you know, Jesus is a rape baby, and this kind of stuff's very common and prevalent today. It's not like that at all. You need to keep reading the story, as we'll do in just a minute. God said, here's what's going to happen. Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. God's going to overshadow you. Here's what's going to happen. But I need your consent. I've come as a messenger from God both to tell you what's going to happen, but we're waiting for your consent for it to happen. No one will proceed until Mary says yes. And listen, no, no pressure from God will take you to where you're scared to go unless you say God, I'll receive you as well. Yes, I'll get baptized. Yes, I'll engage with you. Yes, I'll, I'll volunteer. Yes, nobody's going to force you. God's not in the forcing business. But he is in the presenting you with an opportunity. See if you will consent business. So now Mary has a decision to make. It comes in verse number 38. Here's what she says. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Now, those words from Mary is where Mary makes the decision. She's like, okay, I've got a decision to make. And her words echo as, as kind of a model for us. Here I am. I am your servant. My answer is yes. Is this what you want me to do? My answer is yes. I am the maidservant of the Lord. If you want me to have this baby, if you want me to, to protect the baby, to nourish the baby, and so that God can become king, so that God can become a human and become king and savior of the world, my answer is let it be done. Yes is my answer. Now, this is why I think Mary is a hero to me. She's got grit and courage. She knows this isn't going to be easy. 
What am I going to tell my parents? What am I going to tell the community? What am I going to tell Joseph? What am I going to, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to be talked about and gossiped about, and this is not going to be easy, and how are we going to pay for this? And we weren't going to start a family for a few more years, and blah, 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 oh, and a lot of things flood my, but my answer is yes. Yes, Lord, if this is what you want, then my answer is yes. I know it will all work out. And if God wants you to do something, ladies and gentlemen, it's all going to work out. I'm not saying we won't stress now and then about the details, but God has got us, and it's all going to work out. So Luke's view of Mary is maybe a little different. Luke's view of Mary is a little different than our view. After Gabriel made God's will known to Mary, and after Mary had given her consent, a child's heart is now beating inside the womb of Mary. And Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, is, as I said, an old woman. She's six months pregnant now. And Mary, her younger cousin, is going to go help her with the baby. So Mary is leaving Joseph, her fiancé. She's only one day pregnant, or we don't know, but just, you know, an hour pregnant or a week pregnant, doesn't matter. She's got a little heart beating inside of her. And she says to Joseph, goodbye. Joseph uh, is kind of oblivious, I guess, a little bit at this point. And now Mary's going down to the south of the country, going down to Austin here to take care of Elizabeth, who's going across the country a little bit. And she's going to go see her cousin Elizabeth. Luke 1.39, Luke picks up the story. At that time, Mary got ready, and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the babe leaped in Elizabeth's womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So now I want you to paint a picture. Here's Mary, not showing. Here's Elizabeth, six months. There's a heart beating inside of Mary. There's a six-month baby inside of, of Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth opens the door and Mary says, Surprise, I'm here to help you paint the nursery. I'm here to help you with the baby. When Mary greets Elizabeth, the baby named John is doing the cartwheels inside uh, Elizabeth's tummy. And the babe leaps inside of her. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and filled her physical body. Now, I'm going to say it in a different way. God in a human form is inside of Mary. <laughs> Little fetus the size of a... <laughs> Eraser on a pencil. It's inside of Mary. And a six-month baby is over here and a grown woman being filled with the Spirit of God. God has shown up at this house. And He's empowering their lives and He's physically present inside of Mary. She has conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, we've already been told. When Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, watch what happens to her. Elizabeth, when filled with the Spirit, begins to preach, proclaim, prophesy, exclaim is a good word. Luke one forty two. In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you'll bear. But why am I so favored? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. Who told Elizabeth Mary's pregnant? She get that off social media? She get an email? Uh, so maybe Mary whipped out her cell phone up there in Nazareth and said, Hey, I'm on my way. Get me a bed ready. No, she just showed up. 
it was all a surprise, but yet Elizabeth somehow knows what nobody else knows but Mary. Say how? The Holy Spirit's already revealed to her that her cousin is carrying the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb was leaping for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill His promises to her. Now, this is the only use in the New Testament of the Greek word anaphaneo. The only time it shows up is right here. Under the Spirit's inspiration, she anaphaneo. She exclaimed with an intense and loud voice. Uh, we'd call that Billy Graham preaching. She's Laying it down like that with an exclamation. She is preaching. That word is used five times in a Greek translation. The Greek translation of the Old Testament. The word they chose five times is anaphaneo. And each time it's found in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It is directly connected to the Ark of the Covenant. It's very curious. Anaphaneo refers to shouts and sounds made by the people in the Old Testament as worship leaders in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Five times it shows up in the Old Testament used this way. Let me just show you. First Chronicles 15, 28. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts and a phaneho, with the sounding of ram's horns, trumpets and cymbals, and the playing of lyres, and harps. Second Chronicles chapter 5 verse 13. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. Mary has Jesus in her womb. She's coming into the home of Elizabeth. And Luke is being very clever with how he's presenting this story. (laughs) This isn't just a dump of the facts. This is told in a specific way. Luke has told this story in a specific way to present Mary to us in Old Testament language that is directly connected to the Ark of the Covenant. Luke could have said this a million different ways, but instead Luke said, I'm intentionally going to say it this way. The Spirit of God shall overshadow thee and come upon thee. And there's leaping babies and wombs and loud voices of explanation. Luke's intentionally told the story this way. It's his Christmas story to tell. And he has chosen to tell it this way on purpose. Luke is saying God present in Mary was like God present at the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. God physically coming to dwell with men. Pillar, fire, cloud. God manifesting, I am here. So the cloud and the fire comes down upon the Ark of the Covenant. Luke is saying in the same way, God was here. Right in the womb of Mary, just as surely as God's presence came down in in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. The language he's using is very specific. Overshadowed. Cloud covered. Leaping. 
Let me show you. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most Highest will cover you, overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born in you will be called the Son of God. Luke is using language to describe Mary that's only used in the Old Testament to describe God covering with His presence in the holy place. Mary is being described as a new tabernacle where Jesus is present in a special manifestation, a special presence in her womb. Uh, Probably the better way to say it, because our tradition has no way to talk about this, Mary is carrying inside of her body the new temple. Because in a few weeks when Jesus starts talking, you're going to hear him say to his generation, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it again. However, he's not spoke of the temple of Jerusalem, but the temple of his body. The new temple of God is actually inside of Mary. And Luke is intentionally drawing parallels between Mary, the ark of the new covenant, with the ark uh, of Moses, if you would, of the old covenant the presence of God whenever the ark shows up in the old testament God's blessings show up in other words if you could get somebody to park the ark in your garage your corn would be nine feet tall in the morning okay that's the kind of thing that happens in the old testament okay I'll just show you second Samuel chapter six the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed Edom the Gittite for three months and the Lord blessed him and his entire household Look what Elizabeth says, Luke 1.42. Blessed are you, and blessed is the child that you will bear. Whenever the ark shows up in the Old Testament, people are humbled before the presence of God. You didn't touch it. It was special. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And David said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? It's very humbled. To be in the presence of, of that ark. Listen to Elizabeth, Luke 143. Luke's playing a game with you guys. This is what I'm trying to show you. Luke 143. Elizabeth says, But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The ark was brought in with shouting in the Old Testament. If the ark moved, people were blowing trumpets and, and it was a big fanfare. It was a parade, okay? Now that's the way they moved the ark into its position. 2 Samuel 6.15, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Luke 1.42, in a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed. Luke is playing a game with you is what's happened. He's playing a literary, he's writing a literary masterpiece here that when you read this, he presupposes, as do all the New Testament writers, that you already know the Old Testament. And this is why we have to know the Old Testament, why we spent a year on it. All the New Testament writers presuppose you already know the story. So when they drop verbal literary hints in the story, your mind will automatically flash back to those stories and link up with what's already been said. Second uh, Samuel chapter 6, verse 14. When the ark moved down the street, David danced before the ark with leaping and, and joy. Matter of fact, David dancing before the ark is famous. Famous. Because David's wife looked out the window and said, Oh, he's embarrassed. 
probably like your wife may have said to you at some point, sir, you should never dance in public. You know, you know what I'm saying. His wife, Saul's daughter, looked out the window and saw him dancing before the ark and basically cussed him and said, please, you're embarrassing God, you're embarrassing the family, please don't dance before the ark, you're making a fool of yourself. But that story is so famous that every Bible reader knows it. David leaping before the ark of the covenant. So when Luke tells the story of Mary and Jesus, Luke simply says this, As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Luke said it that way, so you'd be saying, where's leaping in the Bible? There's no, no, no eight lords leaping. There's no eight lords leaping in the Bible. There's only David leaping, and he's leaping before the Ark of the Covenant. As I already showed you, David placed the ark. They parked it temporarily because there was no place to put it. They parked it temporarily at Obed-Edom's house for a period of three months before they could move it on up where they wanted to move it. It's curious that Luke is careful to say to you that Mary stays with Elizabeth for exactly three months. Luke one fifty six. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months. And then she went home. Yeah, because she was six months pregnant. She went down there. A little bit of travel time helps deliver the baby, paint the nursery, get things going. And she's going to head on back up to Nazareth uh, in Galilee to her own home. But she's there exactly the same amount of time as, as, as the ark is parked at Obed-Edom's. Luke is intentionally retelling the story of God by linking it to the Old Testament. And that's why Mary should matter to us because Mary matters to Luke. And Mary matters to Matthew And Mary mattered to the first disciples. And you should never ignore something that's that important in the Bible. And the reason that Mary matters is because Luke is trying to tell you something about baby Jesus. And he's going to tell you what you need to know about Jesus by telling you about the mother. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He's not just another man. He is a man. But he's not just another man. He's a miracle birth. And his mother was chosen. And Joseph was chosen to take care of him. And this is what God is doing. The apostles had immense respect for her. So much so that Luke is saying, she's like the ark of God. Now, the ark, in case you don't know, if all you know about the ark of the covenant is what you learned from an Indiana Jones movie, there's a lot probably to fill in for you and I won't have time this morning. But for those of you who've been with us Throughout the Old Testament study we just did, let me just reel back the timeline for a minute. Let me take you back 400 years. Now we're at Ezra and Nehemiah, building the three waves of immigration, building Jerusalem and the new temple. Zerubbabel was the first, Ezra, Nehemiah. Remember the story? Malachi is prophesying. Zechariah is prophesying. Let me reel back the story another 70 years. Now we're back in Babylon. Okay, let me reel back the story just a few more years. Now we're at Jeremiah and Jeremiah is prophesying to God's people and saying, if you don't get this idolatry problem fixed, God's going to thump you on the head. You're going to go into captivity and other nations are going to invade us and our army will not stand up. We'll be overrun and we'll be slaves yet again in a foreign country all because of our disobedience to God. And when those days happen, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. And then Jeremiah began to say, but 70 years later, God's going to bring you back into the land. And when God brings you back, curious verse over there in the book of Jeremiah, there will be no more Ark of the Covenant. 
Now let me fast forward. 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Now here comes the three waves of immigration. The Persian Empire rules the world now. Babylon's done. And the Persian emperor says you can go back and rebuild Israel. Zerubbabel leaves the first wave. Ezra, Nehemiah will lead the, the three waves of immigration, rebuild the temple and the wall. When they rebuilt the second temple, the second temple is the temple that continues all the way to the time of Jesus Christ. Okay? It'll get remodeled down there by Herod in the days of, before Jesus right there. It'll get remodeled, be really nice. And then the Romans will destroy it in 70 A.D. Okay? The second temple is the temple that Jesus went into. Okay? In the second temple period, when they came back from the captivity, there is no Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Did you know that? They rebuilt the candlestick. They rebuilt the table of showbread. They rebuilt the altar of incense. But the Ark of the Covenant disappears in the days of Jeremiah, and it's never found again. You say, well, Indiana Jones will get it. No, he won't. And if you were to find the Ark of the Covenant today buried in your backyard and you were like, holy crap, I can't touch it. You know, my eyes will melt like that Nazis did, you know, on the TV show. If you were to find the Ark of the Covenant in your backyard, you could handle it all you wanted. It is no longer the dwelling place of God. Stay with me for a minute now. Listen, that thing was sacred for 800 years. Moses built that thing around 1400 and until, what? Gosh, captivity, 586 B.C., Babylonian captivity. Until 586, if you touched that thing, you'd drop dead. I mean, the power and presence of God emanated from that golden box. Do you know what's in the box? Four things. Two tables of the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God carved out of the wall of Mount Sinai. Aaron's rod that budded is in there. The staff that Aaron carried. And there is a pot of manna in there. And then on top of the box, the lid is called the mercy seat. Where the two cherubim with folded wings and their faces to the ground. And it was on that mercy seat that the power and presence of God would descend and manifest that God is with Israel, with his people, and where the blood would be sprinkled once a year. Everybody with me in the story now? When the ark was gone, pre-Babylonian captivity, it never shows up in the story again. Now every week, I, I saw this week on TikTok, some, y'all see it? We found the ark of the covenant. You know, and lo and behold, it's right under the cross and when Jesus' blood dripped down onto the Ark of the Covenant, yeah, it's, it's all fake, guys. It's all fake. If the Ark of the Covenant showed up tomorrow, you know what it would mean? Absolutely nothing. God doesn't dwell in the Ark. When Mary shows up in the New Testament, a new era has begun. God now dwells in people. You know why we don't call this Cornerstone Temple? Because you're the temple, not this building. God doesn't dwell in a building. He dwells in His people. In the person of God's Holy Spirit. Everything is changing now with the coming of Christmas. You say, well, what does Christmas mean? This is what Christmas means. God doesn't live in a box. 
You say, why didn't they rebuild the box and put it in the temple? Because you know there's no presence of God when they re-inaugurate the second temple. This is part of why they're depressed. Do you remember that story? Yeah, we're doing this, but listen, God isn't here. No. And in the days of Jesus, they're, they're in there. And, and there's, the, only, the only time God shows up in the temple in the New Testament is when Jesus shows up in the temple. And He's trying to tell you, God is here. He's not in there. He's right here. In this temple, not in that temple, things have changed. God is doing what He promised He would do. Christmas has come. The God is now going to become king, and the king is right here. God is present. When we said that, they just said, well, that's just complete blasphemy. God said, no, this is what I'm doing. Let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, when God shows up, what do you call the area where God shows up? What word describes the atmosphere when God comes down in physical presence? Holy. So when Mary approaches Elizabeth and Elizabeth says, Who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? What is Elizabeth recognizing? We are on holy ground right now. Because the Savior of the world's heart is beating inside your womb, Mary. God has done the big thing that He said He would always do. And when people said, Where is God and where is justice? Now we know. In the womb of a virgin girl from a country town in the middle of Nowheresville, God has done the big thing He always wanted to do. And He's using the most unlikely people in the story. A barren woman and a virgin young woman. People that nobody really knows and people that are not big shots in the world. And God says, I'm about to execute my magnum opus. So I want to say to you, because God no longer dwells in this building, God dwells in those temples this morning. And Paul said when all of these temples, living temples, come together for worship, that God's presence hovers here and overshadows us in a special way. And if you can recognize that at the burning bush, God says, take off your shoes, Moses, you're on holy ground. And Moses humbled himself before God. Then I want to ask you, what does it mean when we come to worship together on Sunday? This is a holy place. And you say, yeah, but it doesn't feel like the burning bush. Well, then this is what the burning bush felt like. You say, well, it doesn't feel like I'm in the presence of Mary and baby Jesus. Well, this is what you would have felt if you had walked into the Bethlehem scene then. God is as much here this morning. As he was in that manger in Bethlehem. And he's living in hundreds of living temples this morning. And when we come together, I mean, Elizabeth says, bless you. So I'm just thinking, when we come together, should we bless one another? Well, in the New Testament, you know, you greet one another with holy kiss. We're too creeped out by that, and I don't want all of your sloppy kisses on a Sunday morning. And you don't want mine, and... You know, in a post-COVID world, that's completely unacceptable. Uh, but I just want to say this. Could we not show some affection for one another? I mean, very appropriately, of course. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, but could we not at least say, you know, I love you. God bless you. Man, it's great to see you. Merry Christmas. God's blessings on you. Listen, learn to proclaim benediction on people. You know, not in a pious manner, but in a real human manner.
I just think about the implications. When we come together, we, we should worship as if God is here. Because He is here. Mary then sings her gospel song. And let me close very quickly with this because I know my time's done. Luke says, Thou, Elizabeth, has said her part. And now Mary's just going to say her part. And what Mary does is kind of compose a, compose a song here. So let me just read it to you. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For God has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. Which just simply in Texan to you means God knows exactly how you're living, where you're living. He sees you. He hears you. He is aware of you. He is present with you. You're not alone. That's exactly what she's acknowledging. And maybe we should acknowledge that in this invitation this morning. If nothing else from this story, maybe we should just bow our heads before God and say, God, sometimes I feel alone and you've just reminded me today, you're always here. And I need to talk to you more. And I'm going to commit myself to that. God, give me ear. You just make that prayer here in a few minutes. And just honor the fact that God is working in your life. Look at verse 51. Can you guys go down to 51 for me? He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Now this is important. Luke, make sure that you know that Mary is seeing some big picture here. That God, through sending His Son to the world, is about to bring down rulers. He's not just coming to die on the cross. He's coming to be King of the world. And there are some wicked and powerful rulers that are going to have to be toppled. There's some wickedness and big, ugly, evil power in the world that's going to have to be brought down. And whatever you're going to read about in the coming year with me, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Demons are going to come out against Jesus and shriek and cry and torment people. And demons are going to come out of everywhere against Jesus. You say, what's happening? He's bringing down the powers of darkness. All the big guns are being aimed at the Son of God. And He's going to cast out demons. And He's going to speak truth to power. And He's going to be fearless and brave. You say, why? Because God has sent a king to make things right. And powerful forces will need to be toppled in order for God to become king. And Jesus is going to do it. And Mary knows that her baby is going to do it. And so Mary starts singing a song and says, He's going to bring down these powers. Verse 53, He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. Now watch how Luke links this up to the Old Testament. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary said, this isn't a new story. This is the climax of the old story. I hope you're ready for Christmas, because Christmas is the fulfillment of everything we've been talking about. This is the, the masterpiece of how God is going to set this world right. Mary is singing and preaching the gospel 30 years before there's going to be a cross. She's proclaiming Christ 30 years before there is a resurrection. She's shouting, shouting and singing in victory before the baby is ever born. I think simply her message to us this morning is this. You can all start singing now. Because Christmas has come. The revolution has begun. God has sent Jesus to be the king of the world. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Thank you for your patient listening of the, 
opening of the Christmas story from Luke this morning. God has a lot to say to us about being with us. You're not alone. Don't be afraid. God has a lot to say to us from this story about taking risks, about being on mission. Why is Mary chronicled for all of history? She said yes to God. Would you be willing to say yes to God this morning? If you've never received Him as your Savior, in this next few minutes, I wish you'd just slip out of your seat. Kim's right here on the front row. You just come and see Kim. Say, Kim, pray with me. I need to receive Christ as my Savior. Let her pray with you. You may need to be baptized. You may need to join the church. You may just need to rededicate your life to God this morning and say, God, I'm just really aware this morning of your presence and how I need to communicate with you and how I need to open my ears to your voice. Whatever you and God need to speak about this morning, I want to invite you to do it right now. I'm going to ask you to very quietly stand to your feet. Be a little easier to move around if you need to come to an altar. And just with your eyes closed gently and your mind in prayer, let your heart talk to God for a moment. Posture and prayer matters, and sometimes we need to get on our knees, and that's why I just make it available to you this morning. Sometimes praying with a leader in the church matters. James acknowledged this, and he said there are some times when you need to come and have one of the leaders in the church pray with you. If you're struggling with guilt, let one of the leaders of the church pray with you, and let's get closure on that and move on to joy in the new year. If you're sick and you need healing, you need prayer in that way in your life, you're facing facing a procedure or something in the days ahead, let let someone pray with you this morning. Don't, Don't bear that burden alone. If you're struggling with cancer or some other ongoing situation, come come and pray with someone. For all of God's people this morning, why not say to God this morning what Mary said? Yes. Why not say what Isaiah said? Lord, here am I. Send me. Use me for your mission. Our business is to train you and equip you to be successful in the mission. But you have to say yes to the mission. God will never impose his way upon you. Open your heart's door this morning and say to the Lord, Lord, all you want to do in my life and through my life, my answer is yes. As Mary said to you thousands of years ago, here is your servant. And Lord, I'll do my best to obey you and to love you and to follow you. Lord, my answer is always going to be yes. Yes. Many people are struggling right now. Struggling to make ends meet in a difficult economy. I want to take just a moment and have you pray about that in your own family. Listen, let's pray for God to take care of us. God can promote you and bless you even in a difficult situation. Ask Him to. Ask Him to make it real. Say to Him this morning, God, as I dedicate myself and my wealth 
and my possessions to you, God, open the windows of heaven and pour out your love and your blessing upon my family. God, don't forget us. And I know you don't forget us. Be real. Be near. Father, this morning, all over this room, people are lifting up their prayers to you. Very diverse. And God, thank you for hearing them. Thank you for seeing us. Lord, like Mary, we're, we're no, nobodies. We're just people, just normal people who work and who parent. Just people. And yet, God, in your goodness, you have taken note of us. You consider us. You care for us. God, thank you for loving us each individually and specially. Thank you for your power and your presence in our life. God, our answer to your cry. When you say, God, who will go for me and who will be on my mission? Lord, here we are. Send us. Use us. We'll make ourselves available. Lord, we'll give you all we can give you of our life and our energy and our talent and our treasure and our voice and our mind and our hands and our feet. God, thank you for examples like Mary and Elizabeth who have such courage. Lord, give us some of that courage in our own hearts this morning. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.